Don't be afraid to have the conversation. For us to be the best we can be, to realize our fullest potential, we have to understand our real history, and then we grow from that. Welcome to the Isle Podcast. I'm John Froze, a former state representative and state senator in the state of Michigan. And I'm David Rutledge, also a former representative in Michigan. Together, we've seen firsthand how the aisle separates one side from the other. The aisle can, in many instances though, bring us together. Today, we will explore just how the aisle has influenced our leaders and public servants, Republicans and Democrats elected and appointed. So join us in the aisle, where together we can deepen our understanding of the things that separate us and explore just how we can work together for the common good. We are so honored to have uh, in the Isle podcast a very special guest today, uh, Sheriff Jerry Clayton. The sheriff is a 33-year veteran in the criminal justice system. He is the current sheriff of uh, serving the residents of Washtenaw County. Uh, and in his fourth consecutive term, uh, as you will find as we uh, go through this, uh, this interview process, the sheriff is not only uh, known statewide, but he's also known, uh, he's also known uh, nationally and internationally. So let's get right to it. Um, sheriff, you've been in this, this business a good long time. And and both John Prose and I would like to would like to welcome you. John may say a few words of welcome. Huh? Yeah, it's great to have you, Sheriff. And and I had the opportunity to listen to a, a podcast that you had done recently. Uh, it was good to get a little understanding of who you are and and really the leadership that you provided in the law enforcement community. I look forward to that conversation. So welcome to the Isle Podcast, Sheriff. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be a part of this. Really excited to, 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 to hear and learn from you and share some of my thoughts. Uh, Sheriff Clayton, uh, both John and I have, uh, have taken a, a reasonable dive into your background. And I've said to John that uh, in my mind, you are an oxymoron. I, I, you, you, you cut across so many different lines. Uh, but I want to start uh, this uh, by learning about what got you interested in the criminal justice system in the first place. Uh, can you share with us a little bit of background uh, that led you into this work? Sure. Um, I, I was just spent some time with my parents uh, over the Thanksgiving holiday, and my dad will remind me every now and then that when I was like six years old, he asked me what I wanted to do uh, when I grow up. And he says, I said, be a policeman. And I'm sure, you know, like most kids, I either want to be a policeman, a fireman, maybe a cowboy. Um, I said that at that time, as I, you know, got older, I had no idea that I'd end up in the profession. Um, and initially in college, I was a communications major. Uh, and I started working in the sheriff's office really as a part-time job while I was working. Um, I, was, I was going to school and playing football at Eastern Michigan. And when I finished school, I figured I'd have a part-time job. I met a woman who now is my wife of 
over 33 years and we started a family and 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 I thought I'd be there for a little bit of while, a little bit of time and then I'd move on. Um but things pro- kept progressing. And and Dave, you know me, I'm a, I'm a competitive guy, so I started testing for everything and getting promoted and I really got to see a different part of the profession. Um what was possible if we understood the this thing called service. And we understood that that all that we do in this profession uh, is a privilege for us. The, the tools that we have are privileges that we really have to um, protect and really be thoughtful about how we deliver the service and the impact of what we do. Uh, and as I learned more of that uh, and, and, and started to get into a position where I was hoping to develop policy and training and actually seeing the outcome of that work, I was just more inspired to stay in it. You talk about a value-driven organization that co-produces public safety. What do you mean by that? What does that take us into inside uh, the Washington uh, County Sheriff's Organization? So I really appreciate that question, uh, Dave. When I when I it's clear. So so here's. I think we we miss the boat. We don't understand the impact of culture on organizations that some of us think if we write the right policy, if we have the right training, the right operational protocols, then we can have the impact that we want. But you can't if the if the values of the organization are skewed, if the basic assumptions about about why you exist as individuals and as an organization and the role that you play is wrong. So we have spent now over 13 years deliberately and intentionally creating an organizational culture in the sheriff's office is values driven, right? The basic assumption that drives what we do is we exist to serve. So even if one of our deputy sheriffs is putting the handcuffs on someone and taking them to jail, they are a receiver of the service that we deliver. We need to do it in the most respectful manner. So that's a value of ours. This co-production of, pro- of public safety is born out of a value of community engagement and collaboration and partnership. That there's not one entity that can create public safety. It takes all of us. We may be the experts in terms of how to deliver certain services, but the people in each respective community that we serve, they're the experts on what makes the, the highest quality of life for them, what is important to them, what makes them feel safe. So that's really the the genesis of what we think about, we talk about a values-driven organization. Sheriff, that's, a, that's an interesting dynamic that, that your role, as you see it, is, is as much cultural as, as it is what most people think law enforcement to be. Uh, what, does it, what does a proper cultural uh, engagement look like for your sheriff's department? And, and what, what does a bad one look like? Did you have to address uh, one that wasn't appropriate or or as you wished it to be when you first came in as sheriff and, and as the chief law enforcement officer for the county? Uh, yeah, John, I think that's a, a, another great question. Yeah, there were, <clears throat> we did have challenges when we, when, we, when we took office. I'll be very frank with you. If the sheriff's office values and the culture had been solid, I wouldn't have got elected. Um, um, I got elected because people saw a need for change and what I articulated in terms of what we could change and what the impact could be resonated with folks. Uh, what's a good, strong organizational culture in this 
in a criminal justice space, a sheriff's office. I'll say again, it's one that recognizes, um, you know, you hear police officers say, look, we want we want all of our staff to come home safe to get to, to come home from that shift safe. Well, the, the right organizational culture is one that believes everyone should go home safe, that there shouldn't be a call for service that we respond to, especially one where someone's in need, right? A, a behavioral health crisis like mental health or substance use, and people die as a result of us showing up to the scene. Now, there are certain things we can't control, but if our value is the sanctity of all human life, if our value is that we treat everyone with dignity and respect, even if they don't show dignity and respect to us, that shapes the way we behave as an organization and it shapes the impact that we make in an organization. If, if a value is that when we are talking about co-producing public safety, what the community says to us is just as important as what, what our perspective is, that I think is the right kind of culture. The one that I think is wrong is one that thinks, look, uh, we have the right to do pretext stops and consent searches and, and no-knock warrants and all that. It's written into the law. The Supreme Court has said we can do it, so we're going to do it. And, 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 and have a cavalier attitude to some degree when things go wrong. And we say, well, the policy was within policy and it was in law, so we must be right, even if the impact is bad. Jerry, you have, um, you mentioned how competitive you are. Uh, and I've experienced that firsthand uh, on the golf course. But uh, I, I'd like uh, you to talk about uh, the many, the certifications, the training you have received. Um, and I was particularly interested in one, uh, one piece that, uh, that I drew when I uh, drew from looking at uh, your, your bio. And that is that you have been trained and you deliver training in something called uh, bias free policing. Can you talk to us about that? What does that, what is it? So really bias-free policing, the, I think foundationally, it's a recognition that we all have bias, right? There's a saying uh, in, in one of the first classes I took is if you have a brain, you have bias. That is, a, it is a human condition. Uh, matter of fact, it's not even a bad condition uh, because a man way back when had a bias against dangerous animals, which stopped them from putting themselves in a position where they got killed. You know, survival of the fittest is, did you listen to your bias about not going where the saber-toothed tiger was, right? Or whatever that, the animal that was going to kill you. So it's innate. It's part of us. Bias-free policing is the recognition of the bias and understanding the impact of unconscious bias in the decisions that we make and the actions that we take. The fact that as human beings, when there's gaps in information, we automatically fill that gap, those gaps. And usually it gets filled with what our, is, is, is in our unconscious mind, and we're not even cognizant of it. So bias-free policing is, first off, recognize that. Ask yourself a series of questions. If this person was represented X, would I do the same thing? That's one question. The other question you should ask yourself is, am I comfortable with all aspects of my decisions and the actions that I take Am I, am I confident in those, so confident that I write it in my police report? If you can't say yes, then you probably shouldn't be doing it. The last litmus test for you is, am I so confident in my actions and decision-making that I would testify to it on the, on, the, on the witness stand? 
And if you say no to that, then you probably shouldn't be doing it. So, so, so that's the simplified version of how we sort of morph that into the police work. That's amazing that, 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 that is entirely, uh, the, the history of, of how we're supposed to do things behind closed doors that we we'd be proud of, right. That our moms and dads would be proud of. Right. Uh, and, and so when you're out in the marketplace, when you're out doing your job in law enforcement, um, that obviously has led to, to a national conversation, a conversation throughout this entire nation. Sheriff, how, how did you both internally as a leader of your, of your officers, of your deputies and of your command staff, how did you address these tragic events of 2020 with, with the unbelievable um, video that we all saw where a black man was killed by a white officer and is now serving a life sentence for that. Yeah, John, that was a tough time for us. So the day after that, we had our own incident where a video, I'll just tell you really quick the story. I got, I got awakened at like 3.30 in the morning. Um, a community member sent me a video and saying, Sheriff, what's this? And it was a video I didn't know at the time, but figured out it was one of our deputies, white male, big guy, that appeared to be striking a black female uh, on, on the head. This is the day after George Floyd. Mm. Mm. So while we were wrestling with this national event, we had our own event, which immediately took off. Protests right away. And what we did was... We, we, within 48 hours, we had looked at all the video. We had done interviews. You know, obviously we're doing an internal, but it was important to us to give the folks the facts. And, and, and because this, this case now has been charged, not the deputy was in charge, the, the, the people involved in it were charged. I won't speak specifically to the case. Mm -hmm. But what we did was we, invest, we did what we were supposed to do. We tried to get as much information out to the public as quickly as we can. We asked the state's attorney general to do an investigation of the officer's actions. Um, and we went through all that. What I talked to the organization about around all of this is, look, don't you don't have to ask me if I have your back. I have your back. But here's the caveat. Not that you can't make a mistake. If it's a mistake of the head because you were trying to do something and you made a mistake, I got you. But if it's a mistake of the heart, something that you intentionally did, that you knew was against our values, you knew was against our policy, you knew was against the law, then I don't have your back. Because to have your back would mean I'm not having the back of the other, other 449 people that represent the sheriff's office. Because you have chosen to do something that is totally against us. And, you know, I think, John, you have to have that honest conversation. Don't be afraid to have the conversation. Don't be afraid to, to acknowledge the fact that the history of policing and African-Americans has been a troubled one since black folks were brought over here in chains. Since 1704 with the slave patrols, the enforcement of black codes, vagrancy laws, Jim Crow, civil rights, driving while black, police have been used as a tool to undermine the rights of black folks and other people of color. That's just an acknowledgement. That doesn't mean we all do it, but for us to be the best we can be, to realize our fullest potential, we have to understand our real history. 
and then we grow from that. So having those conversations with staff, so I know you're stressed and I know all these other things, but we got to move forward. And, and I'll end with this piece. There were some that said, yep, Sheriff, I appreciate that. And there were some that didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can't be worried about those. Amazing. And and with all of the challenges that that a that a chief law enforcement officer has, um, as you say, you're 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 balancing the community response at the same time that you're balancing a response inside your department. Uh, and and as these incidents uh, were were brought to the forefront through video and otherwise, um, it, it really has caused a national conversation after after George Floyd's death. Um, murder, frankly, that, I mean, yeah. the court of law has determined that that is exactly what happened. And um, I'll tell you, it, it is, it has caused all of us to, to rethink um, policing. And, and it's an interesting conversation. Of course, it's been divided on political lines between this whole defund versus, versus take away the badge, all this kind of business. I, I saw an interesting piece, and you may have seen this on 60 Minutes recently, this whole idea of reimagining police and looking at the fact that 70%, according to this particular piece on 60 Minutes, 70% of all police um, calls could, in fact, be handled by other individuals than than a police officer themselves, that, that actual public safety engagement because of, of the, the risk of bodily harm or otherwise but in fact, you mentioned it earlier in your conversation, Sheriff, many of these folks have mental health issues, drug addiction and compliance issues with medications that are leading to incidents that are not necessarily law enforcement necessary, that perhaps we need to triage at the 911 level who engages in a particular action. That doesn't mean that the Sheriff's Department couldn't be back up to a, a, an individual helping with a with a mental health crisis, right? That has the professional capabilities of dealing with a mental health crisis of the individual that is that is being responded to. Your, your thoughts on this whole idea of reimagining police and maybe reallocating resources not to defund police, but to better give police the tools to handle law enforcement, not necessarily mental health issues and drug addiction issues. Yeah, great question. So, um, so defund the police is a great hashtag not an effective strategy for ensuring public safety. Um, I, I, I am not afraid of the argument around alternative responders or unarmed response and all that. I think we owe it to ourselves to evaluate what's the appropriate role for different kinds of service providers in the community. Uh, but we must do it in the most deliberate and thoughtful way. Right? So I was just on a call with a group that's examining the same thing in our jurisdiction. And I didn't say it, but our director of CMH said it. She said, look, um, there are certain calls that you are 100% right. Uh, uh, after, after the fact, we find out police didn't have to come to that, to that call. But we didn't know that going in. Mm-hmm. And what she says is, I'm just asking you, don't send my staff who are masters in social work into dangerous situations. Now, we can get better. We're, we're actually in Washington County uh, working on this, where we've, we're doing a series of focus groups with people with lived experience, people from NAMI, National Association of Mentally Ill, and uh, a bunch of the different stakeholders, our ambulance service, fire service, dispatchers, to really identify 
what criteria should fit for alternative responders, right? In, in our county, we have three of what we think are four of the alternative responders. Police respond. We have a crisis team that responds. It's a 24-hour crisis line of CMH workers. We have what we call coordinated response, where the police respond in coordination with CMH. And now we think the fourth one is to put a police officer in a, in a, in a mental health clinician in the car together. There's a fifth one that sits out that is disconnected. This is the one that's a human services response, right? To, to address housing insecurity and some of the other public health issues that we know are oftentimes contributing factors to why people end up in crisis. So I think there is an opportunity here for us to thoughtfully and deliberately develop the kind of architecture that best positions us to, re to send the right responder to the right place at the right time, providing the right service. But you've seen nationally where there have been places that have been quick to do it and are now walking it back. And I'll end with this. Here's my concern, especially around this defund because of the lack of trust in police and all that. Uh, we don't want to do put, the right, put things in place that actually hurt the people that we say we're trying to help. So, Sheriff, uh, I mean, just in the conversation we're having now, you know, my mind just goes back to personal incidents that I've had, you know, involving police and police stops. And, and, and I, I wonder, are, are you the, the rule or the exception? I mean, the philosophy that you bring, um, I mean, regarding, uh, you know, the, the community engagement piece uh, and, and community um, uh, being part of, uh, of the whole system. And, and, and I know that your views are sought after uh, by a lot of groups in, in, in our country, uh, not the least of which is the U.S. Justice Department. So when you go in with these various groups and provide at an invitation and provide consulting advice, how are you received and how is, is your philosophical base uh, received? Uh, I'll let others decide whether <laughs> the way we think about it is the exception or the rule. Uh, I'll say I'll sit in some of meetings with my colleagues and our thoughts are the exception and not the rule. But I will say this. I've also been, I'm really encouraged because I've said in more and more meetings with colleagues where we're saying the same thing. I don't feel alone. Mm -hmm. That I think there's a movement uh, and there is a, a new generation of police services professionals as leaders that get it, that understand that we need to reform. How am I received? It depends in what context uh, I'm asked to show up. Uh, you said I do some work with the Justice Department, so some of it is is connected with the Civil Rights Division. So these are for police agencies that are having some issues. A lot of my work is, as I said before, we I, I'm seeing more and more proactive colleagues that we're really just talking about how do we do it. We're learning from each other. You know, what are the best practices and the promising practices? When you tried this, how did it work? Oh, it didn't work. Why didn't it work? So we're starting to learn. Uh, and, 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 you know, there's this there's this synergy now with the academic world. So you have programs like the um, New York University 
School of Law Policing Project that's doing amazing work all over the country uh, in terms of accountability and support for police. Vera Institute, the University of Chicago uh, Health Lab that's looking around transforming 911. There are so many entities out there now that are trying to think about reimagining, recreating, reforming, but they're doing it in a in, in such a deliberate uh, way. Uh, I'm really, really encouraged. And I, most of the time, Dave, I'm just honored to be part of the group yes. because I get to learn so much from people that are smarter than me. And then I get to bring it back here. And that sounds like I, I actually know what I'm talking about. Well, Sheriff, I, I asked this question because I, I was troubled by a very sobering report, uh, an investigative piece that I that I saw uh, in the November 21st issue of of the Detroit Free Press. And it was an article, um, an investigative article written by Gina Kaufman and uh, Christy Tanner. In that article, they did this expansive investigation across our state. And this is one of the kernels of a whole lot of kernels of information that 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 kind of got me. And I wonder, are we getting better? Or are we getting worse? And, and it and it said this: black residents more often charged with resisting cops. Now, specifically, they found that black men are nearly six times more likely to be charged with resisting and obstructing police under state law than white men. Black women are three and a half times more likely to be charged than white women. So give uh, give us some hope uh, here, Jerry, in, in terms of, I, I mean, this is a current investigation and in other parts of this, uh, th this investigative report, they said since 2015, it's, uh, the, the statistics are escalating not getting lower. So give us some something hope in the few minutes that we have left here. Um, I don't know. If I, <laughs> I, I want to give you hope. Um, listen, this is a combination of a lot of the things that we talked about, right? Bias on both sides, fear. Listen, um, my wife and I, as you know, are raising, have raised three sons. Yes. Um, my son goes to U of M uh, Dearborn. We live in, in, in Ypsilanti. He just drove, he drives back and forth. I'll be honest with you. It scares me to death that he might get stopped. Because, listen, please, I, and, and I just want to say this. I got to put this in. I love my people, both the people that look like me, and I love the 450 people in the sheriff's office. You don't do this job without being committed to trying to do the right thing. Yeah. I, I, I trust them explicitly. Here's what I know. We pull police from the larger society. And we know what's going on with the level of divisiveness, both within the state, within the country. We're not immune to this. And then you layer on top of that, the stress that comes with a traffic stop or a contact. Look, I know I'm not going to jail when a police officer pulls up behind me and flashes the lights, but it still makes me nervous. So think about that. So I think all of that is in. We don't know each other. We don't relate to each other. We interpret the behavior of others differently. So how a police officer interprets the behavior of someone that of a person of color might be different than than white. Yeah. This and, and the same thing, the black person sitting in the in the car who's scared 
who doesn't know what's going to happen, has seen all the videos. And you know how we get when we're scared, how we respond, the tension and all that. Here's here's where the hope comes. I told you in the last the last question, I see more and more of the people in this profession that get it, that are committed to reform, that are committed and understand the need for partnership. And I see more and more of the people in the community that want to hold us accountable, want to hold us accountable in the fairest way. And I think those are kernels of hope that we have to plant in fertile soil and continue to water by having these kinds of conversations and to challenge each other and hold each other accountable and for us to share our a unified vision of what public safety and safety in the community looks like. Sheriff, that is exactly right. That is exactly the purpose of the 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 aisle podcast is for us to have the kind of conversations that increase communications in areas that sometimes are uncomfortable, uh, areas that are not safe for one side or the other. Uh, and, and in our experience, being representatives in the Michigan Senate and representatives in the Michigan House together, um, the aisle represented that space where we could we could have that kind of conversation. If if you were to step into the aisle right now with somebody who doesn't understand what you're talking about, how can you help them to understand and how can the listeners understand better how to respond when they step into the aisle to try to have this kind of conversation? How do you how do you how do you present that conversation to somebody new? Really trying to understand what's important to them. Um, you know, you hear all the time. I know we hear in our organization where um, they say you don't communicate enough. And then we say, yeah, we do. We send you emails. We do video. We do. Yeah. And you know what? It just dawned on me one time I was doing a class on uh, on leading change. And, it, and you know what it hit me? If I'm not communicating with the words and the message that resonates with you, that addresses your burning questions, you can't, then I'm not communicating. You'll walk away saying, yeah, he said a whole lot of words, but he wasn't communicating. So I think how we start to bridge that gap is two things. Can we find at least one thing we agree on and work from there? Can we commit to finding something we agree on? It's easy to find the stuff we don't agree on, right? Especially if we're on different sides of the aisle. Can we come together with one commitment to find one thing that we agree on and then just let it go from there. Can we have an honest conversation? Can we see each other as human beings? And then let's go from there. I'm not a Dem or Republican. I'm just Jerry Clayton. Bringing my life experience and my history. You know, you're David Rutledge. John, is it Prost? Prost, yep. Prost. Yes. Human beings, let's sit down and have a conversation. I'm sure we'll find a lot of things that we agree on uh, there's always time for us to find the things we don't agree on. Our special guest has been Sheriff Jerry Clayton, the current sheriff in Washtenaw County. Sheriff Clayton, uh, both John Prose and I would like to extend our sincere appreciation uh, to you just taking the time out of your schedule to be here. There's so many other questions that we could have explored with you but our time is, is drawing uh, to a close. I particularly wanted to understand the international scope of, of your leadership and how you're being sought after in various countries. But uh, that's for another day. Uh, John, you wanna take us out? We appreciate it, Sheriff Clayton. Thank you for joining us. And 
giving us some some very thoughtful insights into what it must be like to lead an entire department of 450 individuals uh, at a really challenging time, but one that you've identified as hopeful. Because in fact, folks in that room right now are talking more about the things that you find to be most important. Um, we can all take something from this. And we appreciate you joining us today, both David Rutledge and myself, John Prose, for the IL Podcast. Thank you for joining us today for the IL Podcast. If you liked today's discussion, be sure to like, subscribe, and share the IL Podcast on Facebook, YouTube, or anywhere you get your podcasts. You can also find us at theislepodcast.com. So step into the aisle and make a difference in your life, just like our guest today. And we'll see you in the aisle.